Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Emily LeBeau Lucchese, the author of This Is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines. Emily, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to talk to you. So I'm hoping, so this is a new book of yours that just came out uh, in May, in the beginning of May. And so I'm hoping you can start out by talking a little bit about um, how you got interested in this topic of nurse POWs during uh, World War II um, and, and what drew you to writing this book. So I had heard of the Army nurses in Bataan. And these were the army nurses who were known as the Angels of Bataan because they set up in field hospitals and they provided care to American and Filipino forces during um, the U.S. and Filipino defense um, that eventually um, and quite quickly was lost um, to the invading Japanese army. But I never heard of their Navy nurse counterparts. And um, I found a memoir on the top shelf of my library written by one of the Navy nurses. And it was written in the the 1990s. It's out of print. And uh, I brought it home. And the memoir itself was highly problematic because the the author changed names. She She wanted to be honest about everybody, but she didn't want to embarrass anyone. Even though many of the other women were long gone, she wanted to protect them. Um, So she changed names and then uh, she used a lot of dialogue, which you cannot do in a historical document. So I I, I loved the nurse that was um, Nurse Dorothy Still. I absolutely loved her. I loved her voice. I found her to be so honest, Um, but I did not like the book. It was not a historical document. And it also made her sound a little bit like she was roughing it at summer camp, when in all actuality, she was in a concentration camp. And I found out later from her son why she presented it in such a lighter manner. So what sort of drew you then, so you you put this book together to get at not only sort of her story seems to be the sort of thread that weaves it all together, um, but you introduce us to this whole sort of backdrop of figures and characters and nurses. So um, what sort of drew you to all, not only her story, but these others as well? So th- these 12 women, or as they're referred to in the book, the 12 anchors, because um, they were essentially the anchors of these concentration camps. They stopped helpless and, and, and desperate inmates from drifting. Um, just by providing medical care. And even if they didn't have medical care, they provided comfort. And I was so amazed by these women because they shouldn't have been taken prisoner of war. They should have been repatriated as medical corps under the Geneva Convention, but instead they were sent to a civilian concentration camp. And once they were there, they were under no obligation to maintain rank as military women and to continue nursing. They could have laid in bed all day if they had wanted to. They were under no obligation, and they also weren't under any agreement to be paid for their work. And yet, out of duty, they reported to this makeshift infirmary and provided medical care, comfort. And for many people, they were the anchor. They were the only ones they had. 
because people reported to these civilian camps. They were told to go um, bring one week's worth of clothing. It's just registration. If you are a citizen of any of our enemy countries, you have to register and then we'll release you. And that, of course, was a trick. So you had some people who, uh, you know, let's say you were an American, but you married a Filipina. Well, she was allowed to remain in Manila, but you had to report to the, the, the camp. So that you had people who were separated from their family or maybe uh, women who had married uh, minors who uh, their husbands uh, joined the military and they were sent to the camp. You know, just different reasons why people were alone, except they had these Navy nurses. And I was so in awe of how heroic they were and how their story had never been fully told. And I I thought that needed to be changed. Uh, They've appeared in other books about the army nurses, Angels of Bataan, but they were never given their own story. And I thought, I want to tell this story because I want to change the way we look at women as heroes and we look at women in their placement of war. Because uh, we often forget as a society that, that women were there. Um, and these women, they, they, weren't, they were on the front lines, right? They were at the bombing of Cavite. They were the ones providing uh, care in overcrowded wards. They were the ones who were caring for civilians. Um, They were there and they never received their due as heroes. And that's what I'm seeking to change. And so you set this up in a really interesting, you put it in five parts. And so you start with 1941. So you sort of bring us right in, sort of right before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that first year in 1941 and why you started there? So I started in, in 1941 because it allowed me to position these nurses. They're in the Philippines. And when when all of them initially get their assignment to the Philippines, they're all on different assignments. They're told it's a very good assignment. And I wanted to stress this, that the nurses, because it was so warm, they only worked a half shift. And so they were told, uh, pack a lot of party dresses. You'll have time for dances and uh, tennis and golf and swimming. And so that was kind of an assurance for these women who were, from, you know, some of them were from South Dakota, from Iowa, one from Chicago, a couple from Southern California, that these are women from all over the country and they're going halfway around the world and it's very intimidating and it starts out nice. And then you have the bombing of Pearl Harbor and three days later, the bombing of Cavite. And what I want to stress in this part of the book is how the U.S. was was truly not ready for war in 1941, right? So you have U.S. at the time is is described as a peacetime army. It is the 17th largest in the world. When it comes to um, war weaponry, planes, ships, um, other artillery, we're not there. And this is so key because. General MacArthur, after the attack, he plows ahead with what what was called uh, uh, Plan Orange. And um, Orange Plan, or, uh, you know, I'm I'm failing the name off the top of my head, War Plan Orange would have been very well done if they had backup in terms of troops and food. 
But the U.S. did not have that because after Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt met with Winston Churchill and he met with the Secretary of War for the U.S. And they decided because Churchill was pressing for a Europe first approach, they agreed to come back to the South Pacific later. And because and, the admiral, oh, I'm, I'm, no, go, I'm sorry. I, I guess just what I want to stress is that because the admiral did not agree with War Plan Orange and with MacArthur, and because backup was not coming after the bombing of Cavite, the admiral took most of his fleet to the Dutch East Indies, and they did not. We they did not bring the navy nurses, so these women were essentially abandoned by the navy. Yeah, it was inter- I was just going to say it was really interesting. You you have uh, I think it's the second chapter in that section that you entitle it. Oh my God, this is really war, right? It seemed that there was this idea that um, the war was going on around them, but not that. But they weren't really going to interact with it. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, and that they were really like you know go outside and see that there are air raids and we're getting bombed and this is really a war. It's it, it's interesting that uh, line comes from uh, Nurse Margaret Nash, who went by the name of Peg, and readers will love her. She's one of my. She, the title of the book comes from her. Um, the so many other things come from her. She was this lively, um, vivacious young woman from from Pennsylvania who, at the end of the war, weighed sixty eight pounds, and um, so the nurses they they they. They thought they were safe. Everybody thought the Philippines was safe because the U.S. was there. So you actually had people transferring in from other Asian countries thinking, well, Japan would be foolish to attack the U.S. And so um, they they knew there was war in Europe, but they didn't think it would happen to them. And it did. Right. And they start out by sort of um, in that section, too, you talk about sort of Dorothy and Peg recording notes and sort of taking notes of what's going on. And they're still sort of um, and doing the everyday things. They're sort of exhausted and tired, but they're sort of doing what they need to do. And they haven't gotten to the point where they um, have realized that this is going to be, they're in it for the long haul, right? This still seems to be something where they're. Um, okay. So Dorothy, at that point, she was only about two weeks away from going back to the States. She was, she had done her two years in the Philippines. And so, and there were several other nurses. There was a nurse from Chicago. Um, she was engaged and the Navy didn't allow nurses to be married. So she'd actually sent home all of her belongings. She had her boat ticket home. So someone like Dorothy, she thought she was not going to be in the hostilities for long. And then someone like Pat, or Peg, I'm sorry, Peg was engaged. So her wedding was planned for February of 1942. And at that point, the Navy was going to send her home. So um, these women did did not, they had their lives planned. Um, And then of course, they were taken prisoner of war. Um, Peg's wedding never happened because both her and her fiance were prisoners of war at the time. Right. So then you move us. So, so they've got, you know, Pearl Harbor happens. The, there is, there's really war happening around them. And, and so then you bring us into uh, 1942 and you start out with Dorothy sort of being on the rooftop. It's New Year's Eve, sort of admiring the lights and that, uh, you know, there was a, uh, 
Manila became an open city. And so there were people coming in and out of the hospital. So can you bring us into sort of 1942 and what's going on during that time? So by 1942, um, the nurses, they had been evacuated out of Cavite after the bombing of the naval base. And so they they go into these makeshift hospitals all across the city. And hers is, um, the, the, the Navy eventually moves them all to a former women's music college. And that's where they are when they're taken prisoner of war. So 1942 starts with them standing on the roof and they're looking at the city because the the lights are back on, the blackout has been ended, uh, the Japanese are coming, um, they're taking over the city. And um, so it's kind of their, their last moment. And so they have scotch on the rocks and they just toast each other and to the new year, whatever that might bring. And the next day they are taken uh, prisoner of war in what is initially a very calm transaction. You know, someone knocks on the door, says, everybody here is a prisoner of war. We, we want a list of names, rank, uh, military affiliation, that kind of thing. And then as the weeks progress, it gets um, uh, hostile and violent. And they learn what it's like to be a Japanese POW. And I found, like, speaking of your anchors and your characters, I, I thought that um, a lot of what their sort of their leader, uh, Nurse Cobb, was really interesting. Some of the things she tried to get, she got away with, and she was able to do in sort of her leadership role. So, can you talk a little bit about her as um, an individual and as a sort of leader of this group? Yeah, so I, I loved Chief Nurse Cobb. Her name's Laura May Cobb. She's originally from Kansas, and she um, was almost about 50 years old at the time she was taken prisoner of war. And she was a very firm uh, and fair but terse person, very calm, uh, very cool, uh, but pretty critical of her younger nurses. And uh, that's important to note because... Dorothy, my main subject, is not fond of her chief nurse. So whenever you see them in pictures, it's almost funny to see Dorothy's on one side, Cobb is on the other side. But the other thing you will notice about Cobb in the photographs is she always stands slightly in front of her nurses. And so that's what she was doing the full war, is looking for ways to protect her nurses. She is um, looking for eventually extra fabric money to help them survive, to buy uh, supplemental food, anything she can do to secure something better for her nurses. But what you're referring to early on in in their captivity, they realize that the Japanese military, um, they just pilfer. They take whatever they want. And she realizes they're going to come for their supply of malaria medicine. And so she, she she can't hide it. That would be a reason to be executed. And she can't ask her nurses to hide it. And so what she does is she changes it with baking soda. And um, it's brilliant. So she just mislabels all the the, the malaria medicine um, and then swaps it out with the labels with baking uh, soda. So when the Japanese military comes to to, to, to take the malaria medicine, they actually take baking soda. 
She, she does this, like a couple things. She smuggles medicine. She smuggles um, reports at one point, And they, yes. right. And there was a point where Dorothy was like, why is she wearing that? And finds out that it's because she's smuggling reports. Yes. it's That's actually, you know, it's, it's kind of another funny moment in the book where, so Dorothy doesn't realize until later that the Japanese military was going to initially divide the nurses. And Cobb is working behind the scenes to keep her women together. She's doing it for a couple of reasons. One, she is still hopeful that some of them will be repatriated. So she doesn't want to risk them being broken into groups and one group not being repatriated. Um, and then eventually they're kept together, but they're, they're sent to civilian concentration camp. And so what she does is because records are forbidden, she puts them under her uniform but on her chest, they, they form this incriminating square. They look like documents under fabric. And so she puts on a flower lei. And if, this is so funny. The Japanese don't even pay attention to them. But um, they're standing outside waiting to, to, to be transported to the, the concentration camp. And Dorothy's looking at her chief nurse. And she sees her wearing a lei. And she's just irritated. Like, we're not going to a party. We're going to a concentration camp. Why are you dressed up? You know, that kind of, and one of the nurses has to whisper to her, this is actually, she's, she's keeping our records. And the records are very important because one day they were given to the Navy and the Navy eventually did acknowledge the women with pay, um, although they did not receive as much as the men uh, did. And they did not receive, in my opinion, all the, the medals that they, they should have received, but they were acknowledged due to these records. So Cobb was quite the hero. Right. And these women, I mean, it wasn't like they were just positioned in one concentration camp either. They were moved around often um, during this time and, and had to sort of fend for themselves uh, in, in many different situations and make sure that they were okay in many situations. They were, you know, sick. There was one point, I think, in the same sort of that, that same year where Dorothy um, had gotten uh, hepatitis, I think it was. And, yeah, she um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. had hepatitis. She had um, her appendix burst almost. Um, she they, they they had a lot of ailments uh, among them. One woman had a heart attack. Um, uh, several had undiagnosed tuberculosis, heart conditions, um, a lot of issues. Uh, that they they persevered with. So they were in three camps. And what's interesting about each of the camps was at a former uh, college. So the first one was the Women's Music College in Manila. And then they were transferred to University Santo Tomas in March of 1942. And they remained there until May of 1943. And that's when the camp commander was setting up a countryside camp at an agriculture college in uh, near Los Banos and wanted 800 volunteers to actually go build the camp um, because they weren't going to let them in the buildings. They were going to live outside essentially in fields. And so the Navy nurses at that point, when asked by a surgeon, agreed to go and, and be the medical care providers. And what's interesting about that is, number one, they were going into the unknown. So it was a great risk on their part. And then two, the surgeon they went with was actually repatriated like a month later. So um, he was associated with the Rockefeller Foundation. 
And they did a prisoner exchange, like 1% of prisoners were repatriated, maybe even less. And this guy had connections, so he was on the list. So it's kind of interesting that that he gets the Navy nurses to go (laughs) with him. And then he's like, well, it's been nice. (laughs) And um, so the Navy nurses were the only medical care providers in that camp for about five months. And then they get a surgeon um, transfers in from another camp. Um, And he, in, in, in other books... Um, he, he was a civilian surgeon. He's really played up as the hero of the camp. And, um, I, I, that was not the case. He, he did good work. He was, um, a a caring person. Um, he did a lot for inmates, but it was truly the Navy nurses were the anchors of the camp. Right. And, and these nurses too, it seemed well, a couple things, but one of them was that, um, they were not only, really working day in and day out to help people, but they saw a lot of misery. Uh, They saw a lot of death. Uh, They watched uh, how prisoners and how they were treated, even, you know, and there's a point where you talk about Chief Nurse Cobb trying to save or or trying to protect some of the women from some of the harassment, but they watched how um, not only um, the people in the camps are being treated, by their uh, by the Japanese, but how the Japanese military were treating one another, and, and so you talk a bit too about just those conditions about you know the treatment, and so can you talk a little bit more maybe about some of the things they saw and and how they sort of survived that? Yeah, so this was a, a the, the, there was a culture of violence within the Japanese military. Um, it. If any any officer, anybody who was ranked higher than another, could slap uh, someone beneath for for insubordination, and so then the nurses come to witness that. They witness um, uh, 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 the Japanese guards slapping each other, um, slapping the inmates, and they use the word slap, but these were just hard hits to the jawbone. And after the war, um, there there were Navy officers who were having jaw surgery, having loose molars pulled. Um, There were people who um, partially lost hearing because of damage to the ear. Uh, It it, it was brutal. And, you know, I want to make a point that these these Japanese-run POW camps were brutal, right? So we look at the statistics um, from after the war. And as a point of comparison, if you were an American and you were taken prisoners uh, by the Germans in Europe, there was a 1% death rate if you were an American soldier. If you were an American soldier and you were taken prisoner of war by the Japanese military, there was, uh, it was a 48% death rate. If you were an American civilian and you were taken uh, prisoner of war, uh, it was an 11% death rate. So... These were slow-moving concentration camps. Uh, it, it, they were death camps by starvation um, and other forms of violence. And uh, all of them, including um, all the inmates at Los Banos, would have been executed if they had not been liberated first. So mm-hmm. the 11% was only because uh, the Japanese military just didn't have time to get it higher. 
Right. And and these women w- witnessed and watched much of it and, and were living for years in fear that uh, they could at any point be next. They were. And what's amazing, too, is they still they still showed up to work. And, and they actually, you know, it, when they feared a massacre, they plotted, you know, how do we run with with certain patients? Um, and I think that's just so remarkable that they they what they gave to others in the camp uh it was unbelievably heroic because it was it was self-sacrifice and it was something that they had plenty of time uh, to anticipate and yet they continued to make the decision to care for others right and and, and the the concentration and you talk a bit too about sort of some of the ways they sort of helped themselves survive i thought one of the interesting stories was um Nurse Edwina and uh, buy her books, buying books and sort of renting out books so that she could make some money and get some because she was told by a doctor, right, that she was just not going to survive. Um, yeah. She was so yeah. So it, it's important to note that in the beginning, this is when they were at the, the second concentration camp, Sancho Tomas, that in the beginning, when the Japanese were winning the war, so we're talking 1942. 1943, about halfway through 44, they're a lot more mild with the prisoners. So they're allowed to do things like purchase items from the Japanese-run canteen. They're allowed to receive uh, care packages from from friends and family in Manila. And then they have this uh, this, uh, secondary economy, right? So if you get the resources you need to make candy, then you can apply for a permit and set up in one of the hallways and you can sell your goods. So poor nurse Edwina, she, she was from Pasadena, and she wasn't doing well. Um, she was a little fragile emotionally at the time, too, which is really quite sensible and fair. And um, she was told by a doctor, you're not well, and you will not survive the war. And that was very odd because at the time, and well through the 60s into the 70s, the medical community would not fully diag- uh, disclose the diagnosis to a patient because it was considered uh, bad for morale, that people should not know um, what they had um, if they were terminal. And so she was told she was going to die, which was not protocol. And so she thought, well, if I could just get more food, I'm so hungry then I, I, if I could get money for food, maybe I could survive. So she had these books and she, the other nurses helped her and they kind of bartered and trade and they got about 200 books and they made the anchor library. So they put little blue anchors on it and then they helped Edwina loan out books. Um, and then it, they used, uh, she used the money to buy food and she'd share with other nurses, um, particularly because she had to rest a lot. They would sit at a table uh, on her behalf and man the operation, and then she would, she would you know, share with them. So early on, this type of enterprising, this was possible. Um, but by the end, um, the last days of 44 into 1945, they were getting 500 calories every other day. So at that point, um, it, it, it was... And the the death was accelerating at that point. So much mo- most of the deaths we see came in those final uh, four to six months. Mm-hmm. 
another really interesting thing that you sort of highlight or we see throughout the book is how little privacy, if any, that they have in these camps, just how crowded they were and sort of the living conditions. And so can you talk a little bit about that as well? So they, um, when they were in Santo Tomas, they had about one toilet for every 110, 112 people. So if you were a prisoner at Santo Tomas, your day would begin, they would play the overhead music, wake everybody up, and you probably stayed in either a classroom that had uh, hundreds of other people jammed into it, or if you were a man, maybe in one of the gymnasiums. And so you had a bed, you were given though 22 square feet. So essentially it's your bed and then right next to you is someone else. So after you were woken up, you would likely go stand in the toilet line. And when it was your turn to use the toilet, um, there's about five or six lined up, no stalls. So imagine that. And then if you decided you wanted to shower that day, you would get in the shower line and it, there would be, again, no, it would be about, you know, if you were a woman, about five or six women around one spigot. So um, and some of the nurses, they would get up so early like 4, 4.30 in the morning to go use the shower. Um, they, they had a little more privilege to move about because they worked at the infirmary. Um, so after you showered, if you decided to do that, then you would go get in, in the food line um, at the camp kitchen. And it, it would just be really meager, maybe some rice or some sort of corn mush. In the beginning, you might get a few uh, vegetables or even a duck egg, um, although that dissipated at the end. And then inmates were supposed to do something to contribute to the camp. The nurses worked. Um, some inmates, you know, maybe they peeled potatoes uh, or, or did some cleanup. A lot of people weren't very, you know, into it. Um, and when there's 3,100 inmates, you can kind of slip by. And so um, there was no privacy. Everything was just in front of everyone else. So if you were in that camp at one point, you cried in front of other people, you um, were humiliated, used the bathroom in front of other people. And this is really important to note because towards the end of the war, um, the camp commander decides he wants to humiliate the inmates and, and get at their pride. And so he tries to like have them register and have their photograph taken. And in his mind, he thinks that when they're photographed, it'll be really demoralizing. But he didn't realize, you know, they, they'd been using the toilet in front of each other for, for years. So the humiliation, that, that ship had sailed. And so what's kind of in a funny moment is like the Americans end up for registration, just like making up these really, you know, funny addresses, you know, obscene words or like whatever they knew the Japanese military wouldn't recognize as obscene. And then they would use that as their street name. So you can just imagine, <laughs> you know, plug it in yourself. <laughs> what they were probably coming up with. And then they would tell each other later, like, oh, I went with, you know. So, you know, there, there's a couple moments in the book, you know, the lighter moments come up, but um, just simply because of, of who people are mm -hmm. um, and how they respond. Um, sometimes as best as they can to a situation, um, but but it is a war book. Yeah. No. The uh, another interesting when you moved into 1943. 
three, I think it is, um, the Army and Navy nurses are together and the Army nurses are talking about uh, going on strike, I think it is. And can you talk a little bit about sort of that situation as well? Yeah, so the Army nurses uh, didn't come into the camp until later in 42 um, because they'd been on uh, Bataan and Corregidor. And then when they were transferred and taken prisoner, they were actually isolated. And they were put into an old convent. But as the prison got more crowded, um, they had what they called an executive committee, right? So the, the, the Japanese military left a lot of the day-to-day running to the actual inmates. So they had an, an executive committee. And the executive committee, because of overcrowding, wanted to move the army nurses out of this convent. And it was pretty good real estate for them. So they, they weren't going to give it up. And so they plant. They they wanted a strike, but it was really risky, right? Because if they you could it could just not work out for them, right? They could lose everything, including you know, would they still be needed at the infirmary? How would that work out? Um, so what they did is they targeted my subject Dorothy because she had gone to nursing school in California with one of the army nurses. So they had the army nurse approach Dorothy and kind of suggest, well, we won't be showing up. And Dorothy, of course, she never heard of that. She was worried about the patients. So she went promptly to her chief nurse and said, you know, put me on, I'll do it. And then uh, with that, Cobb went to the executive committee. And so the army nurses ended up getting what they wanted. Um because of this threat of a strike and, and poor Dorothy being used as a pawn. Um, and, and so I should note that, that Dorothy, um, the, the army and Navy nurses were just really different cultures. They got along, they did their work, but they much preferred their own. And it's in 1943 when they are transferred then to Los Banos. Uh, and, so that even that experience of being transferred, they were a little worried. They yes, and you'd said this earlier, but they thought like they were unclear as to what this was going to be like. It could be a really great situation. It could not. And at first, I think they were. It seemed like they were really frightened that they were being sent basically to death. They were, and and it, it, that was actually legitimate fear because later on in the war, entire camps were slaughtered. Um, but they. They did. They kind of wondered. It was just pitched to them in such a way where they had to be suspicious because the camp commander got on the overhead speaker and he told them, We're building this camp. It is going to be, and I kid you not, he uses the phrase, ideal health resort. And the campers are like, oh, no. I, anyway, I shouldn't say campers because they were prisoners of war, they were inmates. So the inmates, they weren't. They were very concerned it was a trap because talking, they are promised, you can grow vegetables and we're going to start with 800 men, but eventually when women are transferred, families can live together. At that point in time, men and women were, were segregated by sex. So, you know, if you were married, you weren't together. And so they were throwing all these things out at them, like food, hygiene, chance to be with your family, 
And after you know a year and a half of being a, a prisoner of war, you have no reason to trust that they would give you the things you want most. So no one wanted to go, and and you have the all these people trying to get out of the draft. And then meanwhile, the Navy nurses realize when they're approached by the the Rockefeller physician, if we don't go, there will be no medical care. And they they didn't like the thought of 788 men without anyone to, you know, put a sprain, something on a sprain or to, um, you know, anything like that, uh, you know, to, to help them if they had a, a fever, nothing like that. And uh, they agreed to go. And, and I think it's, I think it was shortly after they got there, there was another um, story that I thought was really fun uh, about capturing the chicken. Oh, yeah. So this is, <laughs> um, so uh, they get to Los Banos and they see that a chicken made the mistake of coming into, I'm sorry, one second, there's a squirrel on my, oh, I think it wants in my attic. I'm sorry, one second. Yeah. Oh, oh. See that that you can't be missing. In... Okay, I, I think I lost that battle. I'm going to have to deal with that later. Um, so they, um, the, the these poor women, they transfer to Los Banos and they're put in unventilated boxcars for the journey. And I mean, even cattle travels in ventilation, and these women are are, are not given that. And um, so they get they get to the camp. And they have to spend the night outdoors. And then the next day, they're allowed to start building their facilities. And they spot that a flock of chickens has just absentmindedly wandered into, you know, under the barbed wire. And they see this opportunity that if they could catch one, they could have chicken stew. And so one of the nurses, this quiet nurse named Eldine Page, originally from, from South Dakota and then moved to a farm in California. She knew how to walk among chickens. Uh, and so she actually slinks over and she sees one of the birds is debilitated and she grabs it. And um, they have stew that night and they're helped by one of their nurses. One of the 12 is actually a Filipina um, who is amazing because she's technically not a Navy nurse and she could have left them at any time and she never did. And so she helps them, uh, you know, kills the bird and, and takes care of, of plucking it and, and doing all the things that some of the other women might not have been familiar with. And they got to eat. <laughs> they got to eat. <laughs> I know, yeah. but it was really great too, to think about like, I mean, I don't know if it was great, but I just loved um, that idea, like, we're going to go out there, we're going to get it, and then we're going to use sort of every bit of this, and we're going to make broth, and um, all the different ways that they thought of using all the parts of the chicken. Oh, it was all useful to them. You know, the feathers they could use, uh, you could stuff a pillow with that, or um, everything had, had value to them. Everything mm -hmm. had value at that point. And it seemed that they finally also had um, a bit more, uh, the new doctor came in, Dr. Nance, and they had a bit more, um, brought surgical equipment. They were a little leery of him. Uh, 
but they still had a, a some equipment and a bit more room in the hospital and they also trained um some men to help them do their work. Yeah, that was actually Dorothy's idea. She came up with the idea because in in the navy they had what were called corpsmen and um they had corpsmen and that's what they were used to. They were like or, uh, orderlies, uh, nurses, they assisted nurses, they assisted uh, pharmacists, dentists, doctors. Um, I, I should say they were more trained. Um, they had more medical knowledge um, than, than orderlies, but they needed uh, corpsmen. And since they didn't have any, they came up with a, a, Dorothy came up with a training program where they would try to teach some basics to volunteers. And then these men would essentially be their orderlies. And, um, you know, they had some, some rough patches getting them adjusted. Uh, but it was pretty, you know, ingenious, which is, um, I think a great way to describe these Navy nurses because they were so resourceful. Um, they, they had great ideas for how they were, they were setting up the infirmary, because I, I, I want to stress, this, the infirmary was stripped bare. They didn't even have cupboards. There had been two armies that had, had passed through um, during um, the different uh, battles. You had, the American army went through first, and then the Japanese army went through next, and they just stripped that college bare. So the infirmary itself, it was just walls and a staircase. And then I think they had a few things that were bolted to the floor that weren't taken, uh, you know, essentially a surgical table, but that was it. And so the nurses had to create everything. We're talking bed frames, sheets, pillows, um, bandages, anything. They, they had to, to be resourceful. And so they, you know, certainly relied quite a bit on, on their Filipina nurse, um, Basilia. And then these were women from the Great Depression. They, they knew how to sew. They knew how to garden. They had a lot of self-reliance skills that they used to benefit the entire infirmary. And another thing that you sort of highlight throughout the book, and it's interesting when you get to sort of the end in the epilogue, when you talk about sort of what happened after that there was also, even though the men and women were supposed to be separated, uh, this was, you know, war, life or death. And there was also time for romance and falling in love and um, Dorothy included, but many of these women um, fell in love and either married or not, but with people that they uh, had been in the concentration camps with. So can you talk a little bit about that too? Sure. Yeah. So when they first get to Los Banos, there's 788 men and 12 nurses. <laughs> and so the nurses are, are really in demand. You can imagine there's, there's one, uh, Mary Rose, and she, she, there's a picture of the book. She has this beautiful red hair. And she's from South Dakota. And there's uh, the, the, the man who eventually became her husband, uh, he was an American working for the U.S. Treasury in Manila when he was taken prisoner. And he's, he really is so in love with, with Mary Rose that he gets a job as one of the orderlies. And then he cleans out a room in the basement, infir- or the, the infirmary basement for him and a couple other guys. So he's just like always around, you know, he's always making sure, you know, he's, 
he's by his Mary Rose and uh, keeping uh, uh, potential suitors away from from his nurse. You know, in the beginning, in in, in May 1943, it wasn't violent. It was um, eventually that camp would grow to have 3,100 people, and eventually that camp would have a lot of problem inmates uh, because Sandro Tomas, whenever there was a draft, if you can get rid of 500 inmates and you can get rid of your biggest problem people, right? The people who have criminal tendencies, the people who are mentally ill, the people who don't get along with others, well, you just ship them off. But in the beginning, there's only 800 of them. So they weren't cramped. The lines weren't as bad. And the uh, commander in, in, in charge of the camp was not sadistic. So in the beginning, it, it wasn't terribly bad. And so they had time to, to form uh, affections with each other. And so um, even the chief, chief nurse cop, who uh, she was in her 50s by then, and she um, formed a strong friendship with a, a New Zealand uh, ship captain uh, who was in his 60s. And he would humor the children with his pirate stories and um, just kind of this nice old, old guy. Um, and Dorothy was uh, very much pursued by another Californian. Um, he was also from, from Southern California. He was a, a civilian pilot who um, was taken prisoner of war and sent to the camp and um, was very interested in Dorothy. And, um, that was a little problematic because he was actually married. Um, and so that added on a layer of heartbreak for her because when they were in the camp, you know, they were together there, um, for almost two years, um, in the camp together. And at that point, they don't know, will we ever go home? What will happen? And so, Ties at home were very much forgotten, and um, this this relationship, his name was Thomas, was extremely important to her. And this was the person she talked to, who she relied upon, who was the person who understood her on on the days that she felt inhuman. And um, you know, at the end of the war, that's just ripped from her. And that's extremely painful. But for many of the other nurses, um, uh, one woman named Goldia, she married another inmate directly after the war. And then um, Mary Rose, her and her husband, uh, they got married within two months of, of liberation. They were, they got married on Friday the 13th. And the <laughs> priest said, are you sure <laughs> you want, you don't want to wait? And they said, it's the only day you have open and we've waited for so long. So they have, by the time we get to 1944, it, they just are not sure they're going to get out alive. And I think there's one point where letters and packages are showing up and they realize that those care packages are not going to the Americans, just the British um, prisoners of war. So can you talk a little bit about that ending and the feel, what was happening and what was going on with them by that time? So, you know, they truly almost did not survive this war. All the inmates at Los Banos survived by six hours. If there had been a six-hour difference in their liberation, it would have been 3,100 massacred inmates. So they almost did not survive. And um, mail, whenever it comes, it comes through the Red Cross. 
And the instructions are so difficult to understand that very often people at home are trying to write letters or trying to send things and it's not getting through. And there's, there's, yeah, one occasion where everybody's surrounding, you know, who's getting mail and, and people are so hopeful, will my name be called? And it's only for the British inmates. And, and, you know, uh, you have mostly Americans and British, but you also have some Australian, um, uh, Inmates, Dutch, French, anybody who was from uh, an, an allied country, Chinese. And uh, it's really devastating. And then the next time the mail comes around, you know, Dorothy gets like two, three letters at once in a package. So that was extremely important to them to let them know you still exist outside this camp. There's This is potentially not permanent. And there might be a life for you outside what is overwhelmingly uh, feels like the end of your life is being in the camp. Right. And then we get to the end. And like you said, like they were almost dying, right? There's bombings that are happening that they're worried. Um, They're hunting for survivors throughout um, these camps as we get to the end of 1944. And so can you talk a little bit about sort of those final days and those final hours and, and eventually being liberated from these camps? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So and by the end of the war, towards the end of 1944, uh, the Allied forces are winning and they're taking back key islands in the South Pacific. And... Um, the, the Japanese military responds with their prisoners of war in, in the Philippines, um, primarily by shipping the, the 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 military POWs to Japan in slave labor camps. And so their thought behind this is, um, if we lose the Philippines, if we lose the occupation, we do not want to do it in front of our prisoners, number one. And then number two, uh, the prisoners, when liberated, could be quickly fed rehabilitated, and then turned into fighting machines. So they, they ship a lot of the men to Japan. And then um, for those who are not shipped, they begin massacres. And so the book covers the, the uh, massacre um, at Palawan, in which 150 uh, military uh, POWs were lit on fire. And uh, several survived and reported to... Um, a guerrilla headquarters, and then we're connected with the American um, resistance. And at that point, um, they decided to begin liberating uh, the POW camps because it was very clear uh, that the Japanese military had plans to massacre both civilian and military. So when they get to one called um, Cabana Chuan, this is where the survivors of the death uh, Bataan Death March were placed. Um, there's only about 500... 500 of them left. They're in terrible condition and they're in occupied territory when the allies liberate. So they need to get them out of this camp immediately. And the survivors are so wrecked that they don't believe it's happening. And so they think that it's actually Germans playing a trick on them. And so what the, the allied forces learn, and this is repeated again at Santo Tomas in January, is that uh, these prisoners of war do not behave in a way as predictable. So um, they do things like they want to eat, they don't want to leave, they want to pack, they want to ask questions, you know, why doesn't your uniform resemble 
what I remember, uh, because U.S. had indeed changed uniforms um, when the war began, so the military men did not recognize the new uniforms. They didn't, you know, they were, where are you from in California? If you're really from California, how do I know you're not German? So this was not what the U.S. military had planned. Now, for Dorothy and all them at Los Banos, they were also in occupied territory. There was no strategic advantage to the U.S., so they had to wait all the way until late February of 1945 for liberation. And so the day, the night before they are liberated, the Japanese military sets up machine guns around the perimeter of the camp and then turns the barrels inward. And so at this point, the inmates... And they were suspecting they were going to be killed. And they're trading information. You know, you should run or you should play dead, trying to help each other survive. You know, this is how I, I think I could best survive if this happens. And so Dorothy and, and Peg Nash are due on the night shift at the infirmary. And Chief Nurse Cobb expects them to go. And they do. Which is, again, going back to how remarkable these women were and how committed they were that, you know, here's a chance this could potentially be your last night on Earth and, you know, you're working the night shift. Um, So they were on duty the next morning at dawn uh, during liberation. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too. You have pictures throughout just looking at the pictures of these women once they are released and just how emaciated they all are um, and then how they're sort of treated in some ways once they are released. And one other thing that was interesting for me too, was you talked a bit about how they um, like we started using penicillin, for example, they started to learn Mm -hmm. about all the things that they could have used and would have been really useful for them uh, during these years in concentration camps. So can you talk a bit about that transition for them and what that was like once they were liberated? Yeah, sure. So they, it's important for people to remember that these women were taken prisoner in, or in, in January 2nd, 1942. So they're essentially, their last outside contact with the war world was December of 1941. So they're essentially paused in 1941. They miss everything that goes on in the outside world. Um, Sometimes they they get newspapers, but it'll be, you know, for things that are not helpful to them, like, you know, fashion and and recipes. And um, their medical knowledge is paused in 1941. So when they get out and um, so they're liberated and they're all they all weigh less than 100 pounds and they all have these major medical issues, um, yet they are needed uh, where they're liberated, they're brought to Billy Bit Prison, um, and they're asked to nurse other liberated prisoners because it's kind of a staging area for getting people back to the U.S. or for those who are staying in Manila. They have to wait till the Battle of Manila is over, so they're nursing um, casualties from the Battle of Manila. They're nursing other inmates, and they're learning from the army just how far behind they are, right? So all this single-use stuff in terms of supplies, different tubing, uh, different needles, they hadn't done that in years. Um, They 
penicillin would have just solved so many other problems in the camp and they had not had any exposure to it. They, they, even during liberation, they had never seen a Jeep. So, um, they were being reintroduced to the world. And what was hard about it is that their reintroduction was really framed by the news media as girls coming back from camp. And so from they're they're in this, you know, they're at Billy Bid for about a week or two, and then finally Chief Nurse says, enough, you know, these women need rest. We're going home. So they, they begin traveling back to the US and they have to take about five different planes, go through the different islands. And every time they land, it's interviews with reporters, it's photographs, and they're they're being used for propaganda purposes, right? Because the US still has uh you know, another five, six months left in the war, still signed war bonds. And what a better way to do that than a beautiful nurse who was a POW and can motivate Americans to give. And so they kind of can cock the story that really, you know, presents them as girls who are roughing it. They're back home from camp. And one headline even says how they're not picky about spam anymore. Like, ha, 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 you know, that's terrible. They, they, these women were, they're military veterans. They were military heroes. And they were being denied, um, I think, the reception they deserved. Right. And you you end the, we've talk, been talking a while. So you end the book with this um, sort of epilogue and sort of talking a bit about what these anchors, these sort of major characters that you bring up sort of, what their life was like after the war, giving us little snippets. So is there any of those that you want to highlight or, you know, share? Yeah. So I, I want to share because this to me is the, the crux of the book and the crux why I hope listeners in this podcast will support this book um, either by, you know, buying it yourself or asking your local library to please buy a copy is that when Dorothy, when the war was over, and she she was doing the war bond tour. She she badly had PTSD, and she was crying without provocation. And when she cried, it was very difficult to stop. And so she had um, she was dating at that point a naval officer who she ended up marrying, and he told her to go see the naval psychiatrist and to try to get a medical discharge. And she went to the naval psychiatrist, and she described all that she went through, and the navy psychiatrist just denied her. He said that because she was a woman, that she was a liar and a fake, and she did not suffer. And that really shut her up. She, her son told me that whenever she was asked about it, she would either only bring up, you know, the funny moments, like the things we, we discussed, or she would make it sound like she'd gone to Girl Scout camp. When in reality, she was a military hero. And I'm sorry, my airpace fell out. In reality, she was a military hero and um, she was denied that in her lifetime, that acknowledgement. And so what I hope to do with this book and what I hope readers will support is women's history and correcting a story that, a history that has not been fully told. Because right now our take on history suffers from this. We have only one viewpoint. It belongs to one certain type of person and everybody else is just on the periphery. And we are still at a point in time where we can crack this for future generations, 
by broadening the lens of how a story is told and by including women, we broaden the lens. So I very much hope, um, you know, if listeners, um, like I said, if, if, if you don't buy the book, please ask your university library or your local library to buy a copy. Most librarians are, are typically pretty happy to accommodate a request um, so that we can get this story into the collective memory and we can add to history and make it more diverse and therefore more correct. Yes. No, I completely agree. I think it's fascinating, really important. Uh, Even in just looking at some of the images and some of the photos, we see so many photos, but these are not ones even that we often see when we think about um, World War II and what was happening in um, the, in, in the, you know, sort of the Pacific uh, during this time. So, you know, it's these stories, it's these images, it's this history of these women who none of the women are still alive, but many of their uh, children are. And people who, yeah. Yeah. That's sort of what- yeah. The, the, the people that, um, the people that they cared for. And I think it's just, it's, these women are a story about humanity at its best. Mm-hmm. And we, often seek inspiration in, from our historical figures. And um, I think that we c- can see inspiration in female historical figures mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And we should. And I think it's just about broadening the, 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 the space so that the narrative isn't just one viewpoint as to who was involved and who made a contribution and who shaped the world we live in now. Um, because these women did too. So you, this book just came out. Um, I don't know if you're working on anything else or if you have any upcoming dates where you're talking about the book or anything, any sort of last things you'd like to share about what you're either working on or what's coming up with this book. Well, everything else is in such a preliminary stage. Um, It'll be more women's history, more correcting um, narratives that I feel have been mistold because they were defined by a narrow viewpoint. Um, But right now, just focusing on making sure um, as many people as possible know about the 12 anchors. Um, I do a lot of speaking libraries. Um, I have some nursing symposiums that have asked me to speak and um, just trying to tell as many people as possible about this story. And I'd love to see this made into um, a young adult version. Mm. So it's kind of something that um, I've seen it done with other books and I'd like to see it done with this one. Um, I know that it's a hard story and it's a war book, but um, I don't know what kids like, they, they like, they love that. All these like, <laughs> yeah. And then don't they, they watch like these like war, like hunger games and stuff like that. So Figure if you can handle that, yeah. then oh, you yeah. can handle the 12 anchors. <laughs> uh, again, so Emily, thank you. This was Emily Lebeau Lucchese, and the book is This Is Really War, The Incredible True Story of a Navy Nurse POW in the Occupied Philippines. Thank you so much for talking to me about your book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Again, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thanks for listening. <laughs>